Meir Shalev was born in Nahalal, Israel. First of all, you're the son of poet Itzhak Shalev. That comes in almost every biography. You must be proud of your father. I was proud of my father since early childhood, and I hope had he been alive, he would be proud of me today. He didn't uh, see your success then? He saw my, my first children books and my first novel. We have many writers and uh, literary people in, in the family. I have two cousins who write. My, my sister is, a, is an editor uh, when she lived in Israel. I'm with your sister. She's with us. Is yes. It now, my sister lives here in Montreal. Oh. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm local. Okay. I still send her my manuscripts wherever I'm stuck or having too many problems. Okay. And she helps me. And uh, we have an uncle who is a, a critic. We hoped we will never have a critic in the family, but we do have a critic in the <laughs> family. But he is a very cultured one. Is he a harsh one? Not really. He is. What he does as a critic is a, is a public psychoanalysis to the writer. So you can take it uh, as a harsh approach. Pretty presumptuous. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but he, he's an expert. But is he, he's a trained uh, trained psychoanalyst? No, no, but, but he's an autodidact like many of us in the family, and, and he studied this subject, and, okay. and he's very good. And. Um, Yes, so uh, I think we grew up in, in a family surrounded by words and sentences and books, and uh, it, it may have some influence. Makes sense, yes. And you grew up in an agricultural cooperative. Part of my childhood, yes. Uh, then moved to Jerusalem, and where you live today? Yes. Yes. You've studied psychology at the Hebrew University and produced and hosted several radio and television programs. You are a regular columnist in the Israeli press and write essays and fiction for both children and adults. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much. I'd like to uh, start with the radio and television. One of the most successful programs in the United States right now, it's called The Daily Show. Are you familiar with it? Not really. I'm sorry. I watch television less and less, and when I watch television, it's either little news and mainly uh, nature films. This is what I like to okay. watch, and also programs about cars, motorcycles, uh, things like that. I'm thinking of animals crossing the road and getting hit by cars. Is that outcome? <laughs> is this what I'm looking for? No, no. No, okay. No, I prefer cars being hit by, by animals. Okay. No, if I have to make the choice. Choice, yes. okay. The reason that I bring up The Daily Show, and there's also one called The Colbert Report, is that these are satirists. And what's happening more and more is that the sort of educated population is turning to these programs rather than traditional mm -hmm. news programs for all of their information about the world. You started off doing something similar, ironic Some features? Some satirical and ironic aspects in my, in my show. It was, a, it was a Friday night talk show and I used to invite politicians and, and talk to them about subjects which are not necessarily political showing them from other sides of, of, of their personality, behavior, and sometimes it was quite satirical. Some of these interviews were not allowed to be broadcast after being recorded because when I was on television, this was about 30 or 25 years ago, 
the, the one channel we had belonged to the government and the government was a little cautious about uh, its image. So some of the items I did on my programs were later uh, forbidden. This is one of the reasons eventually I left uh, television after many years. You just um, found there was too much censorship or interference? Yeah, there was, there was an amount of censorship. Today, by the way, it's completely free. We have more channels, it is opened, and we have uh, some satirical shows which I find not biting enough, but still they, they are free. Okay. Uh, these days you were under some kind of control, like the head of the television will tell you this is not something we can broadcast to the people of Israel on Friday night and destroy the happiness of Saturday or something like that. You left broadcasting to turn to writing because you felt there was greater freedom? No, the main reason was more personal. The main reason was that I felt I do not do what I should do and I was nearing the age of 40 and I thought that if I don't change my career at the age of 40 I will find myself in television till the end and then I will rethink my life in a way that, that will make me think that I wasted my, my life for television which is not really that important. I wanted to do something which I myself appreciate more. I wanted to be, I'll tell you, it might, might sound as a cliche, but I wanted to be in peace with myself. This was the main reason. Since I already had two, three children books and one collection of essays, I started to write my first novel. The other thing was indeed that it was not uh, very satisfying to work at the government-owned channel at, at that time. Mm. I felt I'm working with um, mediocre, frightened uh, officials uh, and that I'm, I'm giving all my creativity for nothing. I was coming out with a lot of ideas and a lot of items that I thought were good items for television. Many of them were, were banned, so I thought, well, why should I put all that effort and why should I waste my energy on fighting with these people? Do you remember specifically some of the ideas that you had that were banned? Yes, I, I can tell you that uh, I once did a, a staged interview with Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl is the visionary of Zionism. He was the man who visioned the, the establishment of a state for the Jewish people uh, 50 years or 70 years before Israel was established. He's a great, a great personality in our history and I took an actor who looked a little bit like him we, we gave him this beautiful black beard like he had and he had this German accent and I asked him political questions about Israel of today the land he he visioned most of the questions and the answers were were banned by the head of uh, of television at this time and this really made me angry and why was that because he was talking about, uh, in, in his books, about the future state for the Jews, he was talking a lot about a, a secular state where religion and politics will be completely separated. And he, he even I, my actor quoted a sentence from his book saying, generals should be quarantined in their camps and rabbis should be quarantined in their synagogues. <laughs> Something like this. Now, yeah. this is a quotation from this man, mm -hmm. yet it was banned by my superiors. So I thought, if they censor me, then it's okay. I'm still a small television employee, but to censor the visionary of the state of Israel, this is too much. 
He's saying what they don't want to hear. So. He also said things that, that never came true. Like these were his hopes. So his big hope of establishing a state for the Jewish people did fulfill itself. But the character of this state did not come exactly as he wanted it to be. It's speaking of the wishes of, of one person being translated into reality, you've been compared to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And uh, he once apparently said that the English translation of the 100 uh, Years of Solitude was a better book than his original book. Well, I, I read him in, in Hebrew, and I must tell you, I, I like this book and these other books very much. My question, though, is are you satisfied with the translation? I'm very satisfied. I can talk only about the English translation because I am translated to many languages, and I can read only the English translation. You know, I, I even have children books translated to Japanese and Thai, and I have a, a novel translated to Chinese and Turkish. And so you don't really know how good they are. Yeah, no, I, I even got, when, when I was translated to Japanese, you know, Japanese are orderly people, they sent me the layouts for proofreading. As if you can tell, right? Yeah, and I wrote down, <laughs> please improve the rhyming in, in this uh, line. I feel it's a little, <laughs> I hope they, they got it right. So, reading the English translation, usually I'm, I'm satisfied, otherwise it will not be published, but still I must tell you that sometimes there are things uh, lost in translation, as, as we say, and I like my translators to feel free, not to translate, translate me word by word. For example, if I have a humoristic uh, punch in, in a dialogue and they cannot translate it to English, they, they can translate it not in a humoristic way, and put some humor in the next two lines, or something something like this. You moved out of TV and radio, because it was sort of bureaucratic and, and yeah. restricted. I preferred radio to television a lot. This is one yeah. thing I remember very vividly. I worked most of the time for television, but the one and a half year I did for radio was m much nicer than television. Just because it was more relaxed, or no, less No, because it image? had more to do with imagination, and yeah. more to do with words. Less reliance on yes, appearance. Yes. You, you talked about some of the things that were restricted. What is it that you've been able to say in your work, children's, let's say, to start with, that you felt you weren't able to say before? The main, I would say, good feeling about becoming a writer was first that I'm working alone. Nobody is under me and nobody is above me. And there is no crew or team to work with. In, in radio, you're also an individualistic worker, but, but in television, you're surrounded by other people who do, we all contribute to the same show. And They're powdering as, your nose. Yeah. As, as a writer, I, it's only me and my piece of paper and my word processor and my, my ideas. And sometimes I have people, uh, very few that I can talk to about what I'm writing, but still it's it's only me, and I think it, it suits my character more than teamwork. I'm not good at uh, teamwork. I'm sorry about that, but that's it. I don't to like do to something. give orders, and I don't like to receive orders. I, I yeah. like to do my own work and, and to be responsible for what I do. Someone said that all good writers are dictators. I said it when people were asking about the involvement of writers in politics, and I said don't believe any writer who is talking highly about democracy, because in his own work he is a dictator, a terrible dictator, and, and it's even as early as Henry Fielding in the story of Tom Jones, 
in the many times he refers to the reader. Mm. He talks to the, the reader. At the beginning of each chapter, pretty well. Yes. Yeah. So he says, this book is my kingdom, and I dictate the rules, and if you don't like it to the reader, you can just go to another book. I'm God. Yes. Right. Very often I get uh, questions from readers, why did you kill this character? Why did their love did not come true? Uh, because when it happens in real life, there is no one to ask. But when it happens in a book, you have a writer, as if we are responsible for that. I'm speaking with Meir Shalev, and his most recent book is called A Pigeon and a Boy. And I noticed that it's published by Kafka's publisher in America, Shawkin. I'm flattered. We are very different, but still. How are you different? I don't have this Kafkaic uh, look on the world. First, he's a far better writer than I am. Second, is that m my look is different. I look for more colorful, emotional, intricate plots. With some explanation? Not always. I'm in Israel, I'm blamed from time to time for not going too deep into the personality of my characters. And this is something I do on purpose. To let the reader it's fill in yes, the gaps. Yes, this is something I borrowed from the Hebrew Bible, which describes the actions and the words of people, and hardly the feeling of people. Sometimes you may find a sentence, a verse, saying that King David was very angry about this or that, but no digging into one's personality, feeling, memories. These are things, for example, in the terrible chapter of uh, the sacrifice of Isaac by his father in the book of Genesis. This is a very loaded, emotional chapter, and yet the Bible says nothing about the feelings of both father and son about it, yet if you read it carefully you find that they don't talk for three days when they walk there. After the sacrifice which did not come out of course, they go to different directions. It wasn't written specifically but you can understand it from the text. And they never see each other again. Afterwards there is no more meetings or talk between the father and the son. So, so this is the way you understand what really happened there. I, I think many modern-day writers would write this one short chapter in a 600-page novel going very deep into the feelings of, of the character. And that brings to mind Somerset Maugham. One of his key bits of advice to a writer is don't overwrite. This, I'm sorry to say, sometimes I do overwrite. I feel so Sometimes, uh, so you're criticized for not writing enough? And for no, criticized for not writing psychologically enough. But sometimes maybe I give too many details about the landscape and the type of work my characters are doing and all the equipment and the tools and the, the instruments and details. Because I like it as a reader in other books. For example, in Moby Dick, I liked all the different oh kinds of Wheels. ropes. Oh. Ropes and whales and uh, harpoons and boats and oars and whatever. I got completely bogged down when they started talking about all the different types of whales and. The no, I like it a lot. Oh God, it just <laughs> grounded <laughs> me, beached me. A so beached reader. Yeah, you read much American because if you like that, you must like Nicholson Baker. I'm Is sorry, but don't, no? don't know him. He Look, I like very much, for example, Cormac McCarthy. 
who is not a detailed writer. He is very stingy with words. He writes in a minimal way, which is the opposite of my writing. And yet I like his writing very much. But usually I like this full with details and nuances and, and, uh, uh, and descriptions uh, writing. Is this as a writer and as a reader. And is that because it gives you the opportunity to go in and research and learn about these things? I Why do the it? research. I do the research to make the ground on which my characters are standing to make it more reliable and yeah, but believable. Not, not because it really interests me as a person. Uh, if it was like this, I will become a scientist, not, yeah. not, not a writer. That brings up the question of realism, and you've been compared to Gabriel Garcia. But I don't accept this realism and the surrealism and magic realism. For me, one thing is Im imagination, which mm. is something writers should have. The other thing is that, after all, we call it fiction, in English at least, not in Hebrew, but in English. We call it fiction, which means we are telling lies. We are telling things that never happen. I will give you an example. In one of my books, my first novel, The Blue Mountain, I have a description of a person who, who carries his bull on his back. Wherever he goes, the bull weighs more than a ton. But still he walks like this with his bull on his back. A strong and person. He's is. not so strong, but he has this very deep relationship with his bull. This is how they are together all the time. And the other thing was that I described a tractor which had the wrong color. And, and I got about maybe 70 or 80 angry letters from farmers in Israel correcting me about the color of the tractor. <laughs> but no one corrected me about the fact that a man cannot carry a bull on his back, which shows you that readers know the rules of fiction. They well, know yeah, the they're willing to suspend their disbelief when they have to. Obviously, there's lots of different types of people that are reading your books. There's ones yeah. that are willing to accept, and there's ones that, no, if it's not just exactly yeah, the right Because way. they knew that about the tractors, I simply made a mistake. But about the bull, it's part of my imagination or the way I want to describe my character. And I didn't correct this mistake in the Hebrew editions till today, but I, I corrected the color of the tractor in all the translations of the book abroad. Just because you're stubborn? No. In Israel, I felt that I want to get more corrections from more farmers, and it seems that there are less and less farmers in, in Israel, but, You'd like to hear but I never got a, a correction <laughs> from, from other countries about this fact. It's just fiction, but there's all sorts of different techniques that one uses. What's your objective when you're using all these techniques? My objective, is the personal one, is to write a book that I will feel good about, that I will feel very satisfied. Proud of. I wouldn't say proud. I, I would feel that this is the best I can do. I know. Uh, look, I know I will never write as good as Nabokov or Melville. So I'm looking at them from this direction. I'm looking up to them. On the other way, I know I'm better writer than other writers that that I read from time to time. I know like my like place. I, I know, and you will you will ask this, but I will. I will skip this one. So I know my place when, when I compare myself to other books or other writers, but my objective is not to be better than other writers. My objective no, is the to, best be you can be. To, be, to be the best 
with myself and to feel to feel good about what I'm doing and, I, and I'm taking into account a possibility that one day I will be that dissatisfied from my writing and I will switch to a third career. Farming? I don't think so. No, no, it's a little boring, but maybe gardening. And then you could correct novelists about names of flowers. This I do already today. It's <laughs> So you want to satisfy yourself. What do you want to do for the reader? Well, the last thing I want to do is to educate my reader or to make him understand the right way to live or to convince him with my moralistic attitudes. I want to give the reader what I got from books that, that I appreciate, which is a deep, aesthetic, emotional experience, which is both artistic that has to do with his feeling. I, 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 want, I want the reader to, to feel what I'm writing about, to feel it even in his body, not only in his mind. I want him to laugh aloud, to, to tear. How do you do that? I, I hope I do, do it. it. I hope I do it. I'm not so sure, but, but uh, sometimes I get letters from readers who, who prove that sometimes I, I succeed. It's a matter of first a plot. Uh, the story you tell and the characters you you describe, but sometimes it's also the way you phrase a sentence. Uh, sometimes it's if you change the order of words or you or you you select another word from many words which are possible, it, it also helps. There is also a very technical aspect of writing. What sentence are you most proud of? It's hard for me to remember now. Uh, pulling them out of my pocket, but usually these are surprising sentences that uh, will surprise the reader in a way. For example, I, I once had a sentence which I think I like. My sister, when she read the manuscript, also put a finger on this sentence. It's, uh. it's when the all four women are doing imaginary movements of... You know, when you have a bowl of lentils before you cook them, you pour them on the table and you have to remove all the little stones and straw pieces. You have to clean the lentils or the beans before you cook them. This was when I was a little child on the table. So I remember this with our mother and our grandmother talking, telling stories while removing the bad parts from the beans. And, and then I described the man who describes his aunts and grandmother and his mother who is coming to visit him as an older person and they sit all of them at the table talking to each other and there are no, no lentils on the table but still they do this because they cannot talk and this was in, in one sentence that they gave a description of these women and the relationships they had with this man it's, I yeah. gave it to, to Rafaela to read as I, as I always do with every book and she pointed that she always write very nasty remarks on the yeah. margins being helpful. But there she put a line under this sentence and she wrote on the side, this is nice. That is beautiful, yeah. yeah. Do you have in your mind in, uh, some sentences or metaphors that you can specifically refer to that you love? From I other writers yeah. as well? Well, yeah. I, I remember very vividly, of course, the opening lines of Lolita, Fire of My Loins, Lolita, the tongues dances on the palette and uh, the I remember it in Hebrew, the translation. I remember this beautiful sentence in Moby Dick in the first lines when he says that uh, whenever he feels upset uh, he goes to the sea 
to the shore and there he, he sees many other people are watching the, the ocean and he says meditation, this I quote in English, meditation and water are wedded forever. This is something that, that I liked a lot. I remember descriptions of, of Gogol, uh, also when he refers to the reader as, as Fielding uh, was doing, which, which I liked a lot. I had a nice experience with Gogol. This is when I, I was in Moscow a few years ago promoting a book, and my books were translated to Russian. And they asked me about Russian writers that I like, and I said that Gogol and Bulgakov and also Isaac Babel are writers that I like a lot. And then we had a funny, but yet very, in a way, even touching a conversation in which I recited from my heart, from my memory, the description of the feast, the dinner at the Ukrainian head of the police in this little town of dead souls, where the fat guy Subakievich eats all the fishes before everybody has a chance to go to the table. I recited a page from my memory in Hebrew that translated it back to Russian, but of course not the Russian of Gogol, but a modern day Russian. And the audience was roaring with, screaming with excitement when they saw how their texts, very old texts, are alive and well in Jerusalem. This was a, a moment when I felt that even through two generations of translation, which are not professional, a good literature, good written text can cross very easily the yeah. barriers of languages and times Time. and, and yeah. surroundings. It's just standing by itself. What I find so interesting, and I'm speaking with Meir Shalev, his most recent novel is called A Pigeon and a Boy. There's so much praising of mediocrity today. Mediocre novels that are called brilliant and classics and... Yeah, uh, but this is marketing. Yes, it's marketing, but... They the also market mediocre cars the same way, you know. Uh, then you drive it and you see this car has no personality at all, let alone performance. My point is that there are very few great works that do what Gogol's Dead Souls do. And I wonder what your take is on praising works that are not worthy of the praise, and they're devaluing the language. The point is that there's marketing and there's capitalism, but great works will only appear every 10 years, one or two every 10 years. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. There are, there are not too many excellent novels, and there are many mediocre and even bad novels, but this is true about uh, film and, uh, and painting yeah. and any other art. And so what's the critic But sometimes, do? sometimes uh, there are, I, I would say that sometimes there are very good books and good paintings and good photography, and still they will not break this barrier and, and coming into the center of, of attention they deserve. It also happens. I know some books in Israel that I read that should have got international recognition and sometimes even about my own books I would say that I am not surprised that A Pigeon and the Boy, my last novel, was more successful than other novels I published in, in America but still, I think there is at least one which is better than The Pigeon and the Boy. Uh, that hasn't been translated? It was translated and but still it just didn't, didn't get just the didn't same kind of right. attention here. So maybe it's because it is less friendly than this book. But it does have to do with promotion and marketing as well. There is not, nothing we can do about it. 
sometimes I think that one day I will will stop writing and and maybe start a third career like gardening or photography or other things that attract me. And I think maybe it has to do with the fact that as, as a young person, as a child, and even as a person in, in my early 20s, mm. I never thought of becoming a writer. Most of the writers I know will tell you that they wanted to become writers since the age of five. I was reading a lot, and I grew up in a family of, of books and library. And One tends to become one's father. Yeah. Now I'm writing some written material that our parents left behind in their own handwriting. And my father refers there to the fact that they called me on the name of his late father. My, my name, Meir, is like his father. He writes on the page, so now the name Meir Shalev will reappear again. It will be on checks, maybe on articles, on letters, on envelopes, and maybe one day on a book. You know, and uh, I never knew about this sent that sentence. Now I, I read it. Where did I, you find that? I, I read it in, in a sort of a diary they left behind. They wrote together, uh -huh. and I found it there. So you're fulfilling? In a way, in a way, yes. This is not the reason why I'm writing, mm. but, but I think they could have been very happy uh, reading the rest of my books. Well, I know you've made lots of people happy reading your books. and uh, Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for sharing your time with us. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Meir Shalev, who was born in 1948 on Nahalal, Israel's first moshav. It's a kind of agricultural settlement. He is one of Israel's most celebrated novelists.